five. Um, as Maddie mentioned in the beginning, uh, our order of the gathering today is a little bit different because we want to leave some time at the end for prayer and singing. I think it'll make sense to you after you see the, the material we'll be covering uh, this morning in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. We, uh, if you're new with us, we're working our way through this book. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a real joy to have you. Thanks for uh, trying out uh, this church family today. Um, we are uh, just sort of section by section making our way through this uh, great book, and what we, what we hit today is going to feel jarring in a way that's very different than the way we've been being jarred <laughs> in, in this book, um, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. Uh, last week, we considered the significance of companionship and community. God didn't create us to be loners, but to live interconnected lives. And as we said uh, last Sunday, companionship beats isolation. We, we live in a world that pushes us into loneliness, and yet God has uh, hardwired us to be in relationship first with Him and then second with each other. While we shouldn't expect relationships to be without problems, it is essential that we invest in community. Good relationships are far more important than what you might accomplish individually, so your own accolades. They're far more important than any amount of wealth you might amass. They're far more important than uh, anything else. Re life ultimately comes down to relationships, first with God and second with people. I hope this last week, as you've been trying to apply that, that you've had some meaningful relationships uh, with others. This morning, though, as we make our way into chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there are blue ones, and we are on page 320 in those Bibles. We're going to see this morning that uh, the most important thing a group of people ever do, a community of people, if you will, the most important thing we ever do is worship God together. And that topic may sort of feel like it's out of left field, given what we've explored in Ecclesiastes so far, but here's the connection. Uh, it is possible to take this, the, the gathering of the people of God, and turn even this into something meaningless, to, to do this in such a way that it is vain and uh, hevel, that, that it doesn't actually make much of God, but rather makes much of us. And when that happens, uh, we should have just stayed home. That's what the text today is going to help us uh, to see. So look with me at verse 1. Guard your steps when you enter the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word from God. For God is in heaven, and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice uh, with many words. Uh, friends, it seems to me that listening has become something of a lost art. Uh, sure, we hear all the time. I mean, there, there's constant sound going on around us, but how much listening do we actually uh, do? 
we hear a lot, but that's probably part of our, our struggle or our problem, if you will. Chronic noise is, in hall, is a hallmark of this ancient age. But have you noticed how quickly when things are quiet, you begin to have thoughts that you're not comfortable with? How quickly when there's not that noise do we feel uh, empty? Are we pressed with thoughts that we wouldn't want to be broadcast to others? I don't think the racket all around us is actually really about the, the progress of a modern society and uh, the technological advancements of the last decade. I don't, I don't think that's actually why there's so much noise around us. I think those are the, those are the symptoms that really the noise about us is much more about the fact that our hearts are restless. And until we find, as Augustine said, our rest in God, then they will remain uh, restless. And so the noise just helps distract us from what we feel on the inside. The reality is, in many ways, it's easier to numb our minds with distraction than it is to deal with the thoughts and feelings we have that we don't know how to get um, away from us. Racing thoughts tend to distract us from deafening silence. Where there's an abundance of noise, I'm essentially trying to argue, there may not be much real listening at all. And uh, the scriptures today are going to encourage us by helping us see what this time is designed by God to do to sort of help us get reset for another week, if you will. Gathered worship, brothers and sisters, is one of God's good gifts. It is God's gift to a fidgety and disquieted people because corporate worship beckons us to live in the grace and peace and truth that are already ours in Jesus Christ but that are so easy to, to, to sort of set aside and live as though we don't have them. Every Sunday morning, we assemble at 13th and Mill, and this rhythm, marking each new week, not with work or with hobbies, but with worship, serves as a potent reminder that God's glorious and that our King is alive, he's reigning, and he's going to return. And so we get together on Sunday not to do anything else, but as a church family to remind ourselves that those are the most important glorious truths. And then to head out the doors, having been reset and ready to Aim by God's grace to live another week, not inundated with the noise, but living in grace and truth. The singing, the praying, the preaching, the encouraging, the, the observing of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all means to awaken us back to reality, back to the way things actually really are. They are like a spiritual defibrillator, shocking our spiritual hearts back into the right rhythm. 
Corporate worship, you see, is not mainly about us. We, we don't gather for us, really, principally. We gather for God. He is our focus. True worship is by necessity God-centered, not man-centered. Now, yes, all of life, Christian, is supposed to be lived like that. But really, how many times since we were last together was life for you really, honestly, authentically about God? It, it, is, it is difficult to live moment by moment, day by day, with an awareness of God's presence and with a, a consistent submission to and joy in Him. And so one of the ways God's given us to be reminded that that's what life is for is this. One of the principal ways He's given us is this. So this morning, uh, essentially what we want to do is say, there's, there's a way that this can become under the sun. There's a way that worship can sort of be absent from God and just be about us. And how do we not do that? Because you, you are a sincere, godly, thoughtful people. Uh, there, there are churches where the mechanisms and um, style of worship used tends to push us into thinking of worship as performance and worship as being man-centered. We're not a church like that. And yet this can still happen to us because ultimately it comes out of the heart, not from the stage. And so what does this text teach us that would help us to avoid the danger of worshiping ourselves instead of worshiping God? Well, it's going to lay out for us how to approach God rightly. And uh, the first verse addresses the matter right out of the gate. It says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Now, that doesn't mean don't, don't trip in the lobby. It means be circumspect, be thoughtful about how you come in. Beloved, this is no place for casual, superficial, insincere, half-hearted worship. God deserves and God delights in the sincere praises of His people. Anything else is meaningless and dangerous. Uh, before we go on exploring what appropriate worship is, we should take a moment to just sort of speak on this phrase, the house uh, of God. Originally, when Ecclesiastes would have been written, this would have been speaking of a physical place in a way that's different from today. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, that'll make sense to you, but a lot of us are new to the Bible, so give me two or three minutes, maybe four, to, to try to walk you through what that means. And, and if you're familiar with it, would you just pray for people who don't have the background to know what this is referring to? The phrase, the house of God, was originally a reference to uh, the temple in Jerusalem. This would have been the temple that Solomon, King Solomon, had built. In the Old Testament era, the, the gathering of God's people at that time happened there in the temple. This was the place where God said, my glory will uniquely dwell. 
There was lots of a physical, tactile, um, symbolic objects in the temple to help people understand that that's what was going on there. This was to be the very center of the nation of Israel and the people of God. It was the place where God would uniquely make himself known. Now today, God's house is no longer a physical building in Jerusalem. The temple doesn't even exist any longer. It's been torn down, and um, in its place is the second most holy worship spot for Muslims. Now let that sink in, that this is a crazy world. But uh, the mosque built, there's a mosque on top of where the ancient temple was. And uh, when Jews assemble, uh, they go to a place called the Wailing Wall. It's the only external wall remaining that built up to where the temple is. They're praying that that mosque would be torn down and that a temple would be rebuilt there. We Christians know, though, that the physical building is no longer necessary. Why? Well, because When Jesus came and died on the cross, when his arms were stretched out as a substitutionary sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice the temple had always been pointing ahead to, when he died, when he said it's finished, then the curtain inside of that temple that separated God from his people was torn in two from top to bottom. And that symbolized, if you will, that the glory of God has been let loose. The the glory of God now fills not the temple, but His people. And so, church, we are the temple. The people of God are where the presence of God uniquely dwells today. Now, I wish we could just stop there and revel in that, because that is astonishing that a holy God could do something to us that makes us an acceptable place for Him to dwell. It's amazing. And so today, we don't go to a particular physical building as though at that building worship is then acceptable. No, we, we gather as the people, and our gathering as people is what makes this the place where God manifests himself. Does the difference make sense? Now, if you don't uh, know a lot about that and you want to learn more, it's really astonishing. I'd encourage you to um, get together with somebody that you know is a little bit further along in the faith and ask them to talk you through that even more. There are, um, in the New Testament era, God's Spirit now makes this this, not the building, but you, us, the household of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 calls the church of the living God the household of God. What building we gather in doesn't matter because God dwells with us wherever we gather. Even though we don't worship at the temple though, I think what Ecclesiastes calls us to still applies. It still applies not in the sense of the structure, but of the people. 
So how then shall we worship? Well, verse 1 tells us that first of all, we, we worship by drawing near to listen. We worship by drawing near to listen. When we get together as an assembled church, we don't do so primarily to speak, but to listen. Now, could there be something more offensive to our modern sensibilities than that? I mean, all day, every day, we are told that whatever we think is what most matters, and that the sovereign eye reigns over everything. And God says to us in that context, shut up. Shut up for your good. Shut up and listen. Because I, the creator, your creator, have really important things to you, to say to you. The, the world exists because God spoke it into being. The church exists because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The people of God gather not primarily because we need to hear ourselves, but because we so desperately need to hear from Him. Like the priest in the Old Testament would go into the temple, would unroll one of the scrolls of the Old Testament, would read from it, and then would give the sense of what it meant to the people. When we get together, we open the Bible and we listen as God talks to us through His written Word. He speaks, we hear. Even the act of sitting quietly like you're doing right now while a preacher preaches is a powerful picture of the right posture we ought to have before God. God speaks, we submit. Now, like I said, I think this is so countercultural that you might not even recognize how weird it is if you've been doing it a while, what you're doing right now. This is not normal. People don't do this today. All week long, we are immersed in the world that believes in the sovereign self. And so every Sunday, we get back together to be reminded that we are not in charge. That, that what we think may or may not be right. And so we need to sit together under God's word that we might hear what he would say to us, that we would be corrected and encouraged and rebuked and built up, that we would be reminded of the way things really are, the way reality works, because this is God's world. So I just have to ask, church, when you come here, do, do you listen? I don't mean do you hear. I mean do you listen? To listen is to come with open ears. It's to embrace what God says. It's when the Bible sort of grates against your own thinking in something to, to, to decide I was wrong and God's right. And then to in God's strength 
leave with the commitment to obey. Not in your own strength, and certainly not with perfection, but to come under what God says and then learn to live in light of it. Can, can you think of the last time that you were corrected by the Lord in gathered worship? Be it in a song, uh, in a prayer, in an, in an announcement of something, or particularly in the reading and the preaching of His Word. If not, it, it might be that you're not really listening. Because, brothers and sisters, uh, we think all kinds of things and even believe things about God that aren't quite right. And part of the great gift God gives us when we come together is God's Word is the plumb line, and He wants to set us back straight. Um, frankly, uh, I've, I, I'm not as old as I look, but <laughs> I've been doing this a while. And um, I very often feel how in the world did I not get that? Thank you, God, for helping me understand and putting me straight. Almost every week. I want to encourage you, when you are coming, to ask God to help you have that posture. To come with humility. To come to sit under what He would say. To listen, in verse 1, it tells us, is far better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, what is that? Well, that's referring to worship that's thoughtless and, and careless, the worship of just going through the motions, the, the, the worship of sort of while you're sitting there to be hearing the sermon, but really to be thinking about the, the to-do list later today, or what time the football game starts, or your homework coming up. Or even to be, um, to let the thing that's troubling you be cycling through your mind. And, and not really to be, to be hearing. Now, I'm assuming in, in a 40-minute sermon, most of us are kind of going in and out of that. It's, it's, it's when you recognize, oh, I've been distracted, to then try to gather your thoughts and come back in. You're not going to ever do that perfectly, but by God's grace, is it getting better? You find yourself more dialed in than, they, than you used to be. These are the, the kinds of things we'd be wanting to think about. There's a way to, to, to outwardly appear to be engaged. And I can be, um, my wife told me my shirt is short not to raise my arms today because my Belly and underwear will hang out. So, there, there's a way to be, God, I, God, I, she's going to be so embarrassed. Don't tell her, okay? God, I, I, God, I praise you. But to do that for show. To do that so somebody else in the room will think, 
Wow. They sure are spiritual. I want to be like them. Or to do that in such a way that I'm singing, God, be my vision. That means, God, fill my gaze in everything I see. May I see you. There's a way to do that and be saying, God, I'm not there, but I want to be. There's also a way of doing that and say, God, be my vision, but have no intention of actually living like, God, in everything I see, I see you. Do you hear the difference? This is poking at a worship that's phony, that's disengaged, that doesn't really mean it. I told some friends this week that one of the things I most love about our gatherings is uh, that we often have quite a few internationals here. And I've learned over the years that internationals do not do that. That what people sing who are from other cultures, they tend to really mean. And somehow there's something culturally that says, don't mouth that if you don't believe it or if you don't mean it. Uh, those of us who, who are native to America could learn from that. Thank you to those of you who are not from here who have taught me to be careful. This is the kind of thing being poked at. Now, there's some extreme examples of fake worship in the Bible. Can you think of people like uh, Nadab and Abihu or uh, the priests and the people who Malachi rebukes? the very last book in the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament, think about Ananias and Sapphira. These are, these are rather extreme examples met with rather extreme consequences. And yet I think the point is to show us the worship of God is a serious thing. And in all actuality, none of us in and of ourselves are worthy of worship. I don't mean we're worthy of being recipients. We're, we're not worthy of being worshipers because we mess even this up. God wants our hearts. He's not interested in this if I don't mean it. He's interested in a humble posture in which we recognize who he is and ascribe to him the worth that is due him. That's what he wants. Now, if we gather first to listen, then we gather second to respond. So, if God speaks to us in his word, we respond by grace. How? Well, very often we do so in song and prayer. But as we do so, we must be vigilant. Singing in what would appear to be a passionate way and praying long prayers don't necessarily mean we're worshiping. It's possible to fool each other and even to fool ourselves. But God sees the heart. So here's probably the most important sentence I want to give you this morning. Superficial responses to God in worship can only happen when we forget who God is. We only worship 
insincerely, when we've lost sight of how glorious and wonderful the one we're worshiping is. That's why that phrase in verse 2 is there. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. It's a way of saying, uh, we might be tempted to think God is here and we're here. Like we're just, he's, he's all that, but we're not all that bad either. That's, that's what we're tempted toward. And yet when we hear God rightly and remember him correctly, then we see that it, it's not God's here and we're just slightly off. No, it's, it's more like there's a chasm stretching across the cosmos. He is infinitely greater, mightier, more lovely, more holy, more wise, more truthful. He's the creator. We're the created. Sometimes, um, we compare ourselves to each other. And therefore, we think God is here and a lot of my other brothers and sisters are here, but I'm, I'm here. Thank you, God. It's like the parable Jesus told of the man who goes into the temple and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like the rest of these sinners. And then the other one that can't even lift his head in worship, but beats his chest and says, I'm a sinner. What did Jesus say about that? He said one of them went home justified. It's not the one who labored to follow all the external rules, and yet inside was putrid. It's the one who knew he busted the rules, but he came broken and humble. Uh, we need that reminder. When we truly get even the tiniest glimpse of who God is and we remember who we are, then it's not hard to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And when we speak, to speak with sincerity. But we all struggle with spiritual amnesia. We all forget. Right? So we need to be careful not to just rattle off words in song without meaning them, because we can't pull one over on God. Now, the paragraph ends rather oddly. Verse 3, let me read it again. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. Here's the connection. You, you've experienced this. Uh, you have worked yourself into absolute, total exhaustion. Or maybe you've studied yourself into stupidity. Like, you've been so stressed out about a test that you've just fried the, the brain cells you had. And then you go to bed, and you have the craziest dreams. Like, oh my gosh, what was that? And you wake up in a frenzy, like, ah! And then you realize, oh, it's just a dream. And depending on your temperament, you, you might feel like, thank you, God, that that was just a dream, and then you move on. Or it might wreck your entire day. 
but you've been there. You've been so frenetic that even peace, the the peace and rest offered in sleep isn't that. Now, I'm not saying every dream is attributed to that. I don't mean that at all. But some are. Some are. This verse is reminding us that what we dream in those kinds of moments didn't, didn't happen. It's not real. What you dreamed about doesn't exist. Those were just crazy thoughts passing in the night. Just like those kinds of dreams aren't real, the insincere worshiper who mutters things he or she does not mean isn't really worshiping God. We can't pay God lip service because He knows. And so those kinds of thought, those kinds of uh, uh, prayers or singing or noddings of our head or commitments that we are thinking about making spiritually that we don't really mean are just like the passing thoughts in a dream that aren't real. The point in all of this is that we're to worship God with his people in reverence and awe. We're to worship God with his people in reverence and awe. How? Well, we've seen first, listen. Second, respond with sincerity. And third, the, the rest of the passage will show us there's one more way that we worship sincerely. Let's look at it in verses 4 through 7. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you to sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. You may not think of uh, vows or oaths often, but the Bible records many, many, many examples of them and teaches directly about them. A vow is a promise made to God as an act of worship. It's one specific example. The second paragraph is one specific example of the kind of speech the first paragraph is saying, be careful in. It's the kind of thing you don't want to do unless you really mean it. Making a vow is making a promise to God that you will do something. The scriptures speak of these. Let me show you a few examples. They'll be, uh, I think, on the screens. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 and 23, says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require of you, you will be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you promised with your mouth. Psalm 76, verse 11, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. 
Ecclesiastes 5 seems to have in mind a promise made to God in relationship to offerings. It seems contextually that some were pledging themselves to give certain amounts of money as gifts to God in the temple. And yet when they actually got there, they weren't following through in doing it. And God says that's a big no-no. I expect you to do what you say you're going to do. That's true of our speech. That's true of any big commitment we make. It's supposed to be true of anything we say, but especially of the commitments we make. Now, major examples of this that we would be familiar with today are someone uh, taking an, an, an oath if they're on a witness stand, for example. We're all familiar with that. But even more relevant for our purposes would be uh, taking a wedding vow or making a commitment of membership to a church. Or even in a sermon, hearing something, feeling convicted about it and saying, God, I haven't been living that way. And I'm going to pursue it this way, this week, in this way. Would you help me? And then simply not trying, but just falling back into the same old routines. To think we can make promises and not pursue them is foolish. That's under the sun kind of worship. God sees, God hears. And this text says God's provoked to anger by the lying of his people. Church, may we guard our tongues and take our faith with great seriousness. When we gather, may we gather thoughtfully, circumspectly, seriously, with a, a reverence that's worthy of the God who we have gathered to worship. That's why we're here. Our objective when we meet every Sunday is to center our minds and our hearts on God. How? By listening to what He says. By responding with sincerity. And third, by any commitments that we would make to God to aim to keep them. Now, if you're wondering why the topic of worship and reverence comes up here in Ecclesiastes, let me spend a few minutes explaining that and then we'll be done. And then we'll have some time to respond. It feels rather odd. I mean, the whole book thus far has been uh, the, the preacher saying, I wanted to find out, does life matter? Is there any meaning and value in it? And then he went down one path and found that one's a dead end, and he went down another, that one's a dead end, and he went down another, and that one's a dead end. And then, all of a sudden, bam, we're brought into the, the worship of God's people. 
we've wrestled with all sorts of concerns about life under the sun. And what he's saying to us in an implicit way is realize it's possible to treat worship just like you treat everything else. As a a means of self-focus rather than as a means of God-focus. But God knows. I believe what's happening here is the preacher's giving us, he's holding out a little carrot, and he's saying, um, I have been hounding you in this book with the way nothing under the sun matters. And I would like you to finish the book. And so I'm going to throw you a, throw you a bone. I'm going to hold out a carrot to keep you going. Because what he says here about fearing God ends up being the conclusion to the entire book. He's going to tell us at the end, it feels in daily life like nothing matters. When in reality, everything matters because we live all of life under the watchfulness of God. And so, this is a preview of what's going to come in the end. It very well may be that the preacher is telling us, I have been someone who talked way too much and listened far too little. Perhaps as he gathered in the temple, he found himself constantly thinking about his own struggle to find meaning in life, such that worship wasn't really worship. It was more using that place to try to get his own ends apart from God. One of the reasons I think that may be true is if you notice, there is no I in this entire section. Every other text we've been through has been full of I, 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 I. Not I, I. The I has dominated the book. This story is about someone who found that when my life is focused on me, it's miserable. And here we hit worship and the eye passes away. It's, it's, it's fascinating that the self is dislodged from the center of the universe and God became the focal point in gathered worship and the self fades away into the background, but then is never happier because life isn't about us, it's about God. When we revolve around ourselves as though we're the center. We're miserable people. When God is in the center and everything about us revolves around Him, then we find incredible joy that no circumstance can take away. The reality is that we're being invited here into the thing that makes life meaningful. But no one has worshipped God really, 
rightly. We all mess this up. No one except Jesus. Jesus worshiped in spirit and truth. Jesus never broke a promise to his father. Jesus never read scripture aloud without believing it. Jesus never said, yes, Father, I see that, I'll do that, and didn't do it. Jesus never muttered words in a song without fully embracing the joy and the truth they contain. Jesus is the perfect worshiper. And on our own, we're not like him. We disobey, he obeys. But the gospel is the truth that his obedience became ours. And our disobedience became His. And so the truth is that however horrendous, Christian, you are at worship, God is committed to building in you a better worshiper because Christ is in you. And so you have access to worshiping as Jesus worshiped. Isn't that cool? How do we know that? Hebrews 10, I'm going to read this. I'm going to say two or three sentences, then we're going to do some singing. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christian, you are welcome to worship. Even if you've done it poorly today, you are welcome. Repent and then rejoice. Father, as we take a few minutes now to sing together, would you bless this singing and praying and reading of your word? And would you recalibrate us back into the true sincere, right worship of God. As we sing, would you fill our minds and grip our hearts with who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you that you're building true worshipers, worshipers in spirit and truth, and that as brothers and sisters in Christ, as adopted children, as people who our sin has been exchanged for Christ's obedience. That however bad or distracted our worship has been of late, that as we say to you now quietly, I'm sorry, God, will you forgive me? That you do so. And that then we can rejoice in your presence because of Christ. In Jesus' name.